0: Samuel two, three, and four, because uh, that would take a while. So, I want to encourage you to read up before you come on Sunday mornings. Read the passage that we're scheduled to look at together each week before you come to church. And that I promise you, if you do that, that the, the sermon will go a lot better for you if you're familiar with the text before we get here on Sunday morning. So, but open your Bibles to those two places right now, if you would. 2 Samuel two, three, and four, and Romans twelve. Now. Over the past 11 months or so, I've gotten used to saying, I've never experienced anything like this before in my life. It's become kind of a common phrase, right? In fact, it's almost, un- it's almost cliche now to say that these times are unprecedented. We've heard that so many times and about so many different things in- over the last year that it's almost become a cliche, whether it's the, the uh, uh, the pandemic or the, the racial riots and, and protesting that has gone on and the looting that took place just a block away from this church on Robert Street, these are things I've never experienced before in my life. And then just this last week, of course, the riots at the Capitol. And as I've talked to my kids about this, I've said to them, you guys have seen more in your short life, as far as these things are concerned, than it's taken me 40 years to see these same kinds of things. I don't know about you, but again, this last year, there's been so much that has happened that I have never experienced before. It's like a different world. But one thing that Christians can take comfort in is that God's word has a tendency to speak specifically to unprecedented times. There is nothing new under the sun when it comes to God and his wisdom. Maybe you and I haven't seen anything like this last year, but you can bet that God certainly has, and He has spoken about it and prepared us for it through His Word. God's Word has an ability to speak to those unprecedented moments. Now, I wrote this sermon that I'm about to deliver to you more than a month ago. I had no idea any of what happened this last week was going to happen. And it's striking how many parallels there are between these chapters from 2 Samuel and what's going on in our country right now. In fact, at the end of this sermon, you may think that I've added some parts of it since Wednesday to address what has happened in our nation, but I promise you that I haven't. I wrote this sermon more than a month ago, and really, I think that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to offer this text from 2 Samuel to you without political commentary and I'll let you make whatever connections you feel are appropriate. Now, if you have your Bible open to those chapters in Second Samuel, and if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, you'll know that these, these chapters read like a, a blockbuster political thriller movie. I mean, there's all kinds of politics going on in here. There's negotiating, there's betrayal, there's assassination, there are battles that take place. I mean, don't ever, don't, don't ever let anyone tell you the Bible is boring. It has got all kinds of action in it. Now again, because of the length, we can't just possibly get to all that's going on in these chapters this morning. We're going to kind of skim the surface and we're going to take it as a big chunk because it tells a single story. And with any political thriller that you might read or watch in a movie, there's a cast of characters and there is in this story too, in 2 Samuel. First of course, we have David, the newly anointed king of Israel, actually I should say of Judah, He's anointed a king by the people of Judah in the opening verses of chapter 2. That's significant because Judah is the largest tribe in Israel, and there are of course 11 other tribes in Israel who have not anointed David king. Rather they have anointed David's rival, a man named Ishbosheth, which is a fun word a fun name to say Ishbosheth. And you parents who might be expecting a baby boy, you could that name is available for your baby boy, Ishbosheth. Not a very popular one, though. Um, and you would expect that Ishbosheth would become king because when the king dies, King Saul, his son and heir, assumes the throne, and Ishbosheth is the one that the rest of Israel decides to make king because he is Saul's son. So there's obviously a bit of tension here between Judah. Israel's largest tribe and the rest of Israel, in that they don't agree about who should be king. So, David and Ishbosheth are two of the main characters as kings of their representative territories, but there are more characters because Ishbosheth was kind of just a figurehead. There was a puppet master, a man behind the curtain, pulling his strings, and that man was named Abner. Abner was the general of King Saul's army and also Saul's personal bodyguard. And when Saul died, Abner continued his control over the military and became the closest advisor to Ishbosheth, Saul's son. So close, in fact, that it wasn't really Ishbosheth who was ruling over Israel, but Abner making all the decisions. And pretty much every decision Abner made, he made with his own best interests in mind. In other words, Abner didn't really care about what was best for Ishbosheth or even for Israel. Abner mostly cared about what was best for Abner. And Abner had a counterpart on David's side, although not to the same extent. David had military men on his side as well. And like Abner, they were mostly only concerned for their own interests. There is Joab. You're going to read about him today. Joab was David's nephew. And was one of his high-up military advisors, and Joab had two brothers named Asahel and Abishai. And these three nephews of David, they didn't pull David's strings like Abner pulled Ishbosheth's, but they were hot-headed and proud, and you can probably guess where that's going to lead them. So those are your main characters in this political drama that we see unfolding in 2 Samuels chapter 2 through 4. But before we get into the intrigue of these chapters, I want to start in the New Testament, in that passage from Romans 12. So if you have your Bible open there, flip there for just a second. And we read some of these verses earlier, but here's the entire passage from Romans 12, starting with verse 14. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what Paul lays out here in Romans 12 is the standard for how God's people are to interact with one another and treat one another. Bless those who persecute you. That's an echo of something Jesus said live in harmony. Don't repay evil for evil. Do what is honorable. Do the things that make for peace as much as you possibly can. Don't take revenge. Trust God to do what is right. In fact, rather than go against your enemy, show him kindness, Paul says. Feed him. Give him something to drink. Don't use sin to get your way, but rather overcome evil with good. And the reason I wanted to start with these verses is that this narrative from 2 Samuel 2-4 to is a perfect example of what happens either if you heed these words from Romans 12, or if you completely disregard them and just go your own way. That is, in these chapters, we see what happens when we repay evil for evil. We see what happens if we don't seek to live in peace with others. We see what happens when we are consumed with revenge. We see what happens if we don't seek to live in harmony with others. So we're going to break this story from 2 Samuel down according to this foundation of how God's people are to live with one another that we see in Romans 12. Now, as we've already stated, David is finally anointed king. So if you've got your finger in your Bible again, go back to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Keep that other finger in Romans 12. We'll be back there. But 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, it says, "...the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah." Now David had already been anointed king over the house of Judah or excuse me by a judge Samuel of course years earlier but now this is a public and official anointing as king but again he's he's not king over all of Israel yet just Judah the rest of Israel had submitted to Ishbosheth as king Now, as the king in Judah, David could have gathered all of of Judah's military might and gone against Ishbosheth and the rest of Israel. He certainly had the military and strategic experience to be able to do that. And the tribe of Judah was the largest tribe in Israel. So there's a good chance that David could have won if he had tried to take a violent and more military approach to this problem. And if I had been David, I think that's probably what I would have done. Right? After all, God promised me to be the king of Israel decades before, and now the throne is so close that I can almost taste it. Why not just finish the job and take control? That's probably would have been my thought if I were David. But look back again at Romans 12, verse 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight." Now, David could have made a mad dash for the throne, but if he did, there would be two problems. First, he'd be taking the situation into his own hands. Remember, God promised to make David king years earlier, decades earlier even, and so far, God was keeping up his end of the promise. For David to then take matters into his own hands would be a sign that he didn't trust God to fulfill that promise, so he'd have to do it himself. And if David tried to take the throne, it would be according to his own wisdom and by his own strength and not by God's wisdom or God's strength. Second, if David took the throne by force, he'd have to go to war against his own countrymen. It would be a civil war. He'd be fighting against his own relatives. Now, how could a prospective king hope to rule justly if he has to become king by force? How could his kingdom ever hope to live in harmony with him as king. So David decides to heed Paul's words in Romans 12, to live in harmony with others, and to not be wise in his own sight, even when it comes to his rival, Ishbosheth, the king of Israel. So what does David do? He doesn't gather up the army and go to war, he waits and he trusts. He knows that God has promised to give him the kingdom, and he does not need to force God's hand. Sure, Saul's son, Ishbosheth seems to be in the way right now, but God will take care of that. I'll just sit here and wait and trust. That was David's disposition, that same disposition that we see Paul laying out in Romans chapter 12. I am going to wait and trust. I'm going to live in harmony and trust in God to do what is right but not everybody is content like David is to do that. In fact, Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's army, and Joab, the commander of David's army, they had no desire to live in harmony with anyone and sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya or any of those things. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 12. It says, "Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Now, what's going on here is Abner and Joab are having a contest, David is content to live in harmony with those who are against him and wait for God to sort it out, but Abner and Joab want to puff out their chest. They want to see who is the best, who is the most tough, Abner or Joab. So they meet at this pool of Gibeon with their men, and they agree that 12 men from each army will stand up and they will fight against one another. That's what it means when Abner says, let's have these guys come stand up and compete. He says, let's have them fight against each other and then we'll decide based on those results who is better, who is the toughest. Now, a couple of summers ago, my son and I read through the book The Outsiders together. If you've never read it, it's about two rival gangs from the 1960s, the Greasers and the Sochas that are constantly fighting with each other over you know, territory like which gang controls which city block and they're always taunting each other and trying to prove their toughness And really what it boils down to is a bunch of little boys trying to show how tough they are on the playground at recess. That's what it reminds me of. And that's what happens when Abner and Joab meet at the pool of Gibeon. They say, we're tougher than you, we're better than you. Yeah, let's have 12 of each of of our armies get up and compete. So they do. 12 guys from each side get up, they start to fight, and guess what? All 24 of them are killed at virtually the same time. So nobody wins the fight. The dispute about who's the best has not been settled. So what happens? Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. It says, The battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And then later on in verses 30 and 31, it tells us that 380 men died in the battle, all because Abner and Joab couldn't live in harmony with one another. They had to puff out their chests hope it was worth it. See, that's the cost of refusing to live in harmony with one another, but it doesn't end there. After the battle, Joab's brother Asahel, he just can't let it go. He has to stick it to Abner. So Abner's men retreat from the battle and Asahel chases them because he has to show everyone that he is the better man. So if you skip down to verse 23, It says that Asahel refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back and Asahel fell there and died where he was. And then guess what happens when Asahel's brothers hear about what happened? You think that they won't demand retribution? All because God's people refuse to live in harmony with one another and trust in their God. But guess what? It gets worse. Because this battle between Joab and Abner kicks off a years-long civil war in Israel. Go to chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, the first verse. It says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now listen, it wasn't a war that David started or that even Ishbosheth started. David was content, remember, to live in harmony and to wait on the Lord. Abner and Joab, the commanders of each respective army, are the ones that fueled the flames that already existed. And rather than trust God, they trusted in their own wisdom, which led to bloodshed and death and heartache. Now flip back to Romans 12, verse 17. What does it say? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Man, it's easy to repay evil with evil, isn't it? Someone disrespects you, doesn't it come so naturally to respond in kind? Someone slaps you across the face, what's your first thought? I' going to slap you back. It's so easy to repay evil with evil. But Paul says, "Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all when someone pays you with evil." What does that look like? Not what we read about next, verse three, or excuse me, verse six, back in Second Samuel chapter three. Abner goes back after he started this civil war. He goes back to his king Ishbosheth, the puppet king. This is what he. This is what it says. Verse 6 of chapter 3, While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Listen, we can say that this man Abner was not an honorable man. He did not do the honorable thing in the sight of all. Instead, he was always looking out for himself. And rather than do the honorable thing when evil was done to him, Abner does the evil thing back. So once Abner returns from battle, he's getting stronger and stronger. And actually, Ishbosheth, if you read through chapter 3, he accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his concubines, which in the ancient world was a very serious accusation because taking one of the king's concubines for yourself was akin to making a claim on the throne. But because Abner is only looking out for number one, when something evil is done to him, he does something evil back. So this is what he does in verse 9 of chapter 3 he says to Ishbosheth, God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Now, it might sound on the surface like Abner has come to his senses, and he realizes that David is the true king, but that's not what's happening here. Rather, he's betraying his king, Ishbosheth. And he's defecting to David's side because of what Ishbosheth did to him, right? You do something to me, I'm going to get you back. Plus, we already know that Abner is really only concerned with what's in it for him, and he sees that his opportunities for power in Ishbosheth's kingdom have come to an end, so he needs to move on. And where to move on to? To David. Maybe I can rise more in David's camp. So he's going to ally himself with David and do what's good for himself with David. So he doesn't have noble intentions, far from it. He's entirely self-serving. Abner is one of those guys who will always join the winning side. Nevertheless, David, Abner goes to David, and David, David treats Abner better than he deserves. Remember, Abner was the leader of Saul's army, and Saul wanted nothing more than to kill David for 10 years. And Abner was the one who led the military expeditions to hunt David down for those 10 years. So if you looked at David's list of enemies, number one, of course, you'd see King Saul. And then number two would almost certainly be Abner. But David, remarkably, is willing to bury the hatchet between him and Abner. Go back to Romans 12 for a second, because we see what David does. Romans 12, verse 20 Paul says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. So Abner, one of David's greatest enemies, comes to David, and David does not take revenge on Abner for hunting him down and trying to kill him for 10 years. Instead, David buries the hatchet, and he welcomes Abner, knowing that God could use Abner to fulfill his promise to him, to give him the kingdom. Look at now back to 2 Samuel 3 in verse 20. Look at what Abner says to David. It says, When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires." So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Remember, David is content to live in harmony. David is content to wait and to trust. David doesn't want unnecessarily violence and bloodshed. David is not going to take this situation into his own hands according to his own wisdom. He's going to use God's wisdom and leave it up to the Lord. And here, God has done just that. He sent Abner to David, which is a virtual, bloodless way, of David becoming king, because Abner says, I've got some pull with the rest of Israel. I can convince them to covenant with you and to submit to you as king instead of Ishbosheth. No war. No more war, at least. We can do this peacefully. And so David buries the hatchet, and he does, as Paul says, he heaps burning coals on his head. Now, what does that mean? He treats Abner better than Abner deserves. It means that if David and Abner are enemies and David decides to bury the hatchet, then David is clear of any wrongdoing because David is the one willing to settle the differences. So now the onus is on Abner, David's enemy, to either reciprocate or to continue in hostility. And as much as he can, David will do the things that lead to peace. But not again. Again, not everybody feels the same way. (laughs) Because do you remember Joab, the commander of David's army? Right? Abner killed Joab's little brother, and he is still stewing about the death of his younger brother Asahel, who died at the end of Abner's spear. And to him, the news that Abner and David have made peace is not good news. It's terrible news. So this is what we see in verse 26, that when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Surah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So when Joab learns that Abner will ally with David, he just sees red. He's consumed with a desire for vengeance, and he takes it, he kills Abner, and he removes Abner's influence to woo the rest of Israel, to submit to David as king. Abner had a lot of influence in Israel. He could have brought a peaceful resolution to that civil war. But that hope is now gone because Joab needed his vengeance. What did Paul say again in Romans 12, verse 19? He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, David knows that he can trust God with his life, and he can trust that God will be faithful to keep his promises. David knows he doesn't need to take revenge on his enemies because ultimately God will deal with them. David can leave his vengeance to God because God is just and will see the accounts settled. And you can see that Joab just couldn't do that. He had to take matters into his own hand. He had to get his pound of flesh. But good luck living in harmony with others if there's someone you have to get even with. Can't do it. Finally, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, David could have allowed himself to become frustrated and angry with Ishbosheth. When he was made king over Israel, he could have complained to God or even taken matters into his own hands and organized a campaign against Ishbosheth, but he decided to trust God and to wait. But again, not everybody felt that way. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 4 now, with verse 5, it says, The sons of Rimmon the Berethite, Rechab and Bana, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house, as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Ricab and Bena, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in the, in the bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. Here again, are two men who want to buy into David's good graces, and they think that the way to purchase David's approval. Is to deliver the head of Ishbosheth to him. So they murder him in the first degree, in cold blood, two men who were motivated by their own self-interests of what they thought would gain them favor in David's eyes. But it didn't. If you read on, David actually has these two guys executed for the crime of murder. So what's the point of all this? Friends, this is what happens when we live according to our own wisdom and we disregard what God tells us in his word. When we live for our own interests and not the interests of others. When we are wise in our own sight. You know what happens when that's how we live? People get hurt. We get hurt. And what causes all of this, what causes us to disregard God's wisdom we see that in this story too. It all comes down to pride and greed and vengeance. And what's interesting about this is literally everyone in this story that we've just covered here is touched by these events. No one gets out unscathed. Abner is selfish and prideful, and he ends up starting a civil war. And he is ultimately murdered further down that chain of events that he himself started. Asahel. Is selfishly obsessed and prideful, and he ends up dead at the hands of Abner. Joab is absorbed by bloodlust and vengeance, and he has the blood of Abner on his hands. He's one of the ones that started that civil war with Abner. Ishbosheth loses his head because two men wanted to selfishly gain favor with David by killing him. Even David, who by far was the most righteous character in this story, feels the effects of the pride and greed and vengeance of everyone else. He loses a nephew and an ally in Abner at the hands of Joab. Life is a mess when we act out of selfishness and pride and envy and vengeance. Friends, God has a better way, His way. And there is no greater example of this, of course, than Jesus'. Jesus came to bless those who persecuted him, not to curse them. He came to live in harmony with everyone. Jesus was never wise in his own sight, but constantly deferred to the will of God, the wisdom of God. Jesus never repaid evil for evil, even when he was being nailed to a cross. Jesus could have called down legions of angels to take vengeance on his enemies, but he trusted in God for that. He knew that That was not his role. Jesus is the example of how we are not overcome by evil, but instead we overcome evil with good. Now some questions for you to ponder. How would our lives and relationships change if we followed Jesus' example? How would our politics and our public discourse change? How would Abner's life have been different if he followed Jesus' example? How would your marriage be different if you followed his example? Your home, your relationship with your kids. Now, I said at the outset of this message that I'm not going to make any specific connections to any current events of this past week. But I will say this. If you see all the parallels of what we just covered in these chapters to the things that have happened in the last year, and more specifically in the last week, if you see those parallels and you come away from that thinking, yeah, you know, the problem here is Trump. Or the problem here is the Democrats. Or the problem here is the Republicans. If that's what you come away thinking, you have missed it. The problem isn't with them. The problem is with us. Whatever tribe you're in, the problem is with you, because none of us are doing exceedingly well at conducting ourselves according to this pattern in Romans 12. Instead, you know what we're good at? We're good at blaming others. We're good at trumpeting our own side, and we're good at pointing the finger without ever even looking at ourselves. And I'm saying that to you. Whatever side of the aisle you're on and whatever tribe you're in, the problem is with you, and it's with me. If you're concerned about the future of this country, the future for your children, which I as a parent of young children certainly am, the place where change starts is with you, not with your political enemies. Do you understand? You can't sit here and expect them to submit to you when you have absolutely no intention or interest of submitting to anyone or anything else. The problem is with you. The change starts with you. Think of Joab and Abner and Abishai. Any one of those guys could have brought peace to that situation through changing themselves, to acting differently than they did, to putting aside their pride and their greed. But instead, what did they do? They pointed their fingers and they said, I'm better than you. And if you mess with me, I'm messing with you. That's what every single one of these people in this story just did. And we, for whatever reason, we expect change to come when the other people change, right? They're the ones that need to change. God's word says differently. The problem is with you. You are the one that needs to change, no matter where you are politically. You are the one that needs to overcome evil with good. You are the one that needs to do whatever you can to live peaceably with all. You are the one who needs to not avenge yourself. And leave it to the wrath of God. You are the one who needs to live like Jesus. The problem is not them, folks, it is us. Because again, look what look where all of this got Abner and Joab and Abishai and the others. It got them a coffin in most of the cases in here. Look where it's getting us. Even if you believe your side is right, folks, peace starts with you. It starts with me. We are the ones who are called to set the example and to follow the example of our Lord, Jesus. Let's agree to do that. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we've already prayed this morning, we pray yet again, Lord, we are sinful people. And God, even those of us in your church whom you have saved, we still struggle with sin. And Lord, we're surrounded by a culture that is in a world that is full of lies, that is constantly pulling us in every direction, that is tempting us to think this and believe that, and to, to demonize people, to think the worst about people. Lord, none of those things are in alignment with your word. God, as we think about the events of our nation and the events that are happening around us. Help us to filter them through your word. Help us to use your word to gauge our own response, to gauge even our next action today and tomorrow. Lord, help us to be the ones who do whatever we can to live in peace. Lord, help us to be the ones who are known for feeding and giving water to our enemies. Lord, help us to be the ones to, who respond to evil with good so that that evil is overcome. Lord Jesus, help us to follow your example. Give us a mind that is like your mind. Lord, so that we might live out your will. We might be the peacemakers, the ones who bring peace to our situations. And Lord, we ask for repentance, for a spirit of repentance for those of us who have sinned. Those of us who struggle with these temptations and these desires, who struggle with pride. Lord, those of us who are tempted to get revenge, even on a minor thing or in a minor way. Lord, those who are tempted, like me, to point the finger and say, the problem is with them. Lord, help me to see my own sin. Help me to see all the ways that I fall short. Help me to see the myriad ways in which I am not like Jesus. And Holy Spirit, help me to change. Help me to change my mind. Lord, you've changed my heart. Help me to live according to what you have done inside me so that I might be a peacemaker. I might be a vessel of the gospel in this world. Lord, grant us that repentance and that faith Lord, grant our nation repentance. Not so that political situations get better or that things happen to go the way of the tribe I'm in, but Lord, so that people would come to know you. So that people would be saved. God, break our hearts with everything that's gone on in this world over the last year. Break our hearts and let us see how much the world needs the gospel and let it motivate us to be faithful preachers, to get to work to start to declare your word and your gospel to this world that is dying around us. Lord, there is only one path to life, and it's through you. May we come to see that more clearly than we ever have, and may we recommit ourselves to faithfulness to your mission in this world. Would you empower us to this end? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.